hey, everyone, as we get deeper into 2022, it is time for all of us to do our part to save democracy and to show that America can and will stay on that arc of bending history towards justice. I want you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up to help our grassroots efforts. You can decide how you want to help. You can decide where you want to help. Fill out the survey. Tell us where it is you want to help. We'll put you in touch with the people who can put you to work. Jointheunion.us. Do your part. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Jeremy Peters, national politics reporter at The New York Times and author of the new book, Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Wanted. In addition to his work at The Times, Jeremy is an MSNBC contributor, has appeared on Washington Week in Review for PBS, and has a degree in history and political science from the University of Michigan. Go Blue. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So, Jeremy, I was reading your book, which you can find at any great local bookseller, and it was a somewhat painful recitation of the last, I'd say, 15 years of my political life, maybe even more so. I was raised in Washington, D.C. My dad worked on Capitol Hill when Republicans were in the minority. And you fast forward through that time to the time of Newt Gingrich being minority whip in 91 through the 94 election. And then all of a sudden you have this blossoming. And so probably two years, if not to the day, very close, you and I were sitting in New York City having a cup of coffee and the Lincoln Project had just launched. And you and I were sitting there talking about, okay, well, you're a bunch of Republicans. You're taking on Donald Trump. Remember, this is pre-pandemic. The Democrats are arguing about universal health care. Trump is being impeached, right? All of these things are happening, but there was a real chance that Donald Trump would be reelected. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And impeachment only made him more popular, right? Right. And so we didn't know any of that stuff. And so you fast forward 24 months and as upside down as the world seemed then, it's now even more so that the hinges have come off the doors. So take us a little bit through the book, where you start and how, as you said, the Republican Party got what it wanted. The first page is actually January 6th, but that's not where I start chronologically. Chronologically, I start in 1991 when Pat Buchanan is deciding whether or not he should run for president and primary the sitting Republican president at the time, George H.W. Bush. And the reason I found that to be a really good place to start is Buchanan's first run for president did get a lot of attention and people associate him with the kind of America first policies that Trump would later take on himself. But what they forget and what Buchanan discussed with me at length and gave me a copy of his unpublished memoir to kind of back up his thinking here was affirmative action factored hugely into his decision to primary Bush because people will forget that back then there was a civil rights bill that had failed in Congress or no, I think Bush vetoed it, actually, that Congress passed another one that Bush was OK with and he signed it. And this really outraged a lot of conservatives who felt that Bush had betrayed them. It was just another type of betrayal on top of the read my lips, no new taxes betrayal. So Buchanan told me, like, that's why he got in the race. And I think, you know, you couple that with his anti-free trade stance, his anti-immigration rhetoric. And the racial grievances there 
over affirmative action were really palpable and they carry on through to Trump. I mean, remember, this is an era when the debate was a little different around race, but it was people who were upset that they had to press one for English when they would call into an automated phone number. They were mad that their kids were getting rejected from good colleges because they thought that those spots were going to less qualified minorities. And the issues are different now, but the animosity and the resentment is still there and in many ways on steroids. And that's how you get from somebody like Buchanan to Trump, because those issues have never really gone away. I was a 16-year-old intern standing on the floor of the Astrodome in 1992 listening <laughs> to Pat Buchanan give his speech. I was an intern wow. at the convention. And you could see the activists in the crowd just go crazy for him, right? They had to give him a prime time spot. Molly Ivins, the late, great Molly Ivins, famously said that she thought it was better in the original German. <laughs> That's right. Right? So <laughs> this was, for its time, a very radical place, especially against a sitting Republican president. But if you go back to on the racial grievance piece or even the pieces about isolationism, you know, it was Charles Lindbergh. Remember, Robert Taft Sr. ran against Eisenhower in 1952 for the Republican nomination. Eisenhower wins. Eisenhower always had to contend. At the time, it was Joe McCarthy. So there was always this strain, very palpable and very concentrated strain within the Republican Party. But it looks like that, you know, if it was a tumor, it was one largely starved of blood, never went away. But maybe with Buchanan, it sort of exploded and the cells started to metastasize elsewhere in the body. We didn't know it would take 30 years for it to develop to what it is. I don't think Buchanan did either. Well, let me ask you that. That's an interesting question, because, as you know, as someone who was a Republican operative, right, or whatever campaign guy for many years, you know, especially at the national level or a big statewide level, there were always, if you're sitting in the conference room at campaign headquarters with the senior staff, there was always that guy, right? Had a weird look in his eye, wore a red tie every day, and you knew he was like this super conservative guy. And he made everybody, frankly, a little bit uncomfortable, but you knew, like, you could probably win without him, but it was better to win with him, and you weren't likely to give them anything they wanted anymore. Now, that right. was just, Jeremy, that was our arrogance not understanding what was going on when Gary was in the room. Exactly. And that's what I get into in the book. And that's the first part of the subtitle, How Republicans Lost Their Party. Buchanan and people like him benefited in large part because the Republican establishment or whatever we want to call you guys invited them inside the tent, but never really fully shared power with them. And that created the type of resentment that bubbles up and boils over with Trump. Buchanan is especially interesting because you were there for that speech. And that to me, and I get into this in the book because there are many, many episodes like this, was an example of the Republican leadership not understanding the power and the emotion that these types of candidates could whip up. And they empower them. In Buchanan's case, they gave him a prime time speech. He asked for a speech. And that's kind of unthinkable. Like Romney would learn his lesson from this, too. And they told basically Rand Paul to stay the hell away from the convention in 2012 or they or they let him speak at like two in the afternoon. That's what Bush should have done. But what they did instead is they gave him a prime time speech. And then when Buchanan submitted a draft of his speech, there were no red flags. They didn't tell him to change anything except for maybe just add like a little line about Bush as a war hero or something like that. But they, through their own arrogance, underestimated the power that somebody like Buchanan would have over the audience. And you were there, the faces of the Bush family sitting in their box were just mortified as he spoke. 
But he loved that. He loved the way that it was received and that people called him a crazy. As I describe in the book, he's just delighted at this New York Times article that appears after the speech. Somewhere in the piece, it said, you know, Buchanan whips up the crazies, something like that. That's exactly what he wanted. That was his badge of honor, being called crazy by the quote unquote elites. So let me ask you this, because there was something along those lines and you go through, you know, you've got Buchanan, you start with Palin, who if Buchanan knocked on the door, then Palin banged on the door and then Trump like played Jack Nicholson. It was like, here's Donnie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there was always this elite resentment piece, which exists today. And frankly, in some parts of the country is probably you know, like flyover country, they're probably like, well, they don't care what we think. And there's probably some truth to that. But one thing that you said, and I'm not sure who you ascribed it to, is that a lot of the folks that call themselves Republicans now are not Republicans or even conservatives, but they're anti-liberals. Yes, right. And that's something that goes back to Gingrich. Gingrich identified this about Trump. I remember having a conversation with him once, and he said something to the effect of, you know, Trump isn't a conservative. He's anti-left, anti-liberal. This has always been the core of Trump's identity and appeal with certain Americans. I have a scene in the book in which Roger Ailes in 1995, when he's president of CNBC, he hasn't yet started Fox, and he gives himself a talk show. And he has famous people, interesting newsmaker types on the show. One of them is Donald Trump. And he says to Trump, why is it that blue collar types, construction workers, taxi drivers, the hey, Donald, we love you. And Trump's response is, well, I think it's because the rich people hate me. And he always understood that it was more about who hated him, who his enemies were, than about himself. His appeal was that people saw the same types of people they thought hated them, looked down on them, those people in you know, flyover country, as they say, love the fact that Donald Trump had those same enemies. I always use this sort of scenario that we make up. It's the I-4 corridor in Orlando, Florida. It's mid-August. It's 9,000 degrees. There's a road crew. It's six guys, two black guys, two white guys, and two Latinos. They live in different neighborhoods. Their kids go to different schools. Maybe they drink different beer. Maybe they don't talk to each other before or after their shift. But when the white lady in the Range Rover with the little white dog drives by, in the air conditioning and they're sweating their asses off, they all feel exactly the same way. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And Trump had his finger on that in 1995. And to take it back to Sarah Palin, where we kind of started, a formative time for her and developing her political identity was right around the time that Ben Stevens, who's the son of former Senator Ted Stevens, this icon in Alaska Republican politics, called people from Palin's hometown Valley trash. It was a put down meant to describe the kind of rednecky area north of Anchorage that wasn't as prosperous. They called it the Bible Belt of Alaska because it had a lot a high concentration of evangelicals. Well, what do Palin and people like her do? They take that phrase and wear it as a badge. They turn it around on the people who used it as a way to denigrate them and they appropriate it. They're the proto deplorables. Exactly. And that's how I, I lay it out in the book. This was just deplorable by another name. And she had an intuitive sense for how those types of slights would play with her audience. And that's 
what allowed her to beat the sitting Republican governor at the time, Frank Murkowski, in a primary. And she beat him handily. Well, and early in the book, the line here is Bill Crystal says he believed at the time that Palin would merely, quote, accent McCain's message. This is at the time when she's been nominated as vice president. What he didn't count on was that Palin's accent wasn't the issue. She was speaking an entirely different language. And I think, Jeremy, this is a key point. And this is where I think people like Palin and Trump and maybe even Gingrich and Buchanan understand this, which is when they speak that language, they're native speakers. And this is something I want to talk about in a minute. But there's so many of these people we see now, whether or not it's DeSantis or Hawley or Cruz, who it's like they're speaking through Google Translator, right? <laughs> the words are the same, right? But it's not the same language. Does that make sense? No, it's not the same. And I think that's why you know Trump is a singular figure. You can't replicate what he does. He's too good at it. He understands the media with an intuition that you just can't teach. And to take it back to Pat Buchanan for a second, in my reporting, I, I asked Buchanan what he thought of Trump and why it took Trump to finish what Buchanan started. His quote to me was that Trump is the indispensable man. That's what Buchanan called him. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I don't think that this is something that anyone else can or could have done. Well, and if you look throughout history for these types of strong men candidates, everyone's always surprised that they appear, even though the signals of their arrival are always clear in retrospect. And their end is always either very brutal or ignominious. And there is rarely, if ever, as at least in the last hundred years, an heir to that, right? When they go, it ends. So I guess in your reporting, going back to Buchanan and on, you know, as we look at Trump and we talk about the pretenders to the throne, you know, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who's a fabulous writer and academic, wrote a book called Strongman, said about this is that Trump provided an umbrella for all these folks who otherwise didn't have a political place to stay, which goes to the anti-liberal piece. A lot of these people aren't conservatives. They don't even like Republicans. He opened the door for them to be able to come into society, you know, that no one else had ever provided. And again, they're anti, right? Anti, anti, anti. Can someone other than a Donald Trump maintain that intensity? It's a great question. I don't think so. And I think for that reason that Buchanan laid out to me, Trump is the indispensable man here. I mean, he's a cult-like figure, right? I mean, he has a following built around his cult of personality that's very powerful. And Don Jr. is trying. He will try, probably. I don't know that that goes anywhere. He's also Fredo, right? He's Fredo Corleone, so. <laughs> it's not going to work. I just don't see it having the same power. I do think that it's going to take the Republican Party a long time to unlearn that lesson, though, because you have all these folks who act like they're Trump, who were going around making commercials. I interview a strategist in the book about this because he was the one who made the ads with Ron DeSantis and Ron DeSantis's kid building the wall out of cardboard blocks and reading Art of the Deal to his kid, right? So they adopt this Trumpy persona and this really bright guy, Todd Harris, who said to me, and this is a key part of the book, the three-legged stool of the Republican Party now has a fourth leg, and that's all about attitude. It's stylistic conservatism. And Todd understood this because it had worked for him in a way that I think will shock people today. Todd was on the team that made Brian Kemp's ads in the Republican primary, you know, the Rhino Brian Kemp, who, who dared to certify the election in Georgia that Trump lost. Todd made an ad with 
Brian Kemp saying he was going to drive his pickup around Georgia and round up illegals. I mean, that's straight out of Trump's mouth. And now, of course, the irony is he's persona non grata at Brian Kemp in Trump's Republican Party. They learned that they could win that way. To unlearn that lesson is going to be hard. Well, you know, you think about the seminal work of the 88 presidential campaign, What It Takes by Richard Ben Kramer. The idea was like you had to have what it takes, which was, are you willing to do the thing the other guy's not to win? In 88, to win the primary, Bush had to knife Bob Dole, metaphorically. Dole loses his mind. He had to do the things he needed to do to beat Michael Dukakis, and he did them, although Dukakis did plenty himself to help lose. But now what it takes is Trump is in the Republican Party now the standard. And that's a hell of a standard. I mean, you think about this, Jeremy, in the 2016 election, does anyone else other than a Donald Trump take all of the women who have accused Bill Clinton of sexual misconduct and line them up at the first debate? No one else even considers doing it. And that was the example of how the no apologies cutthroat playbook that Trump ran really worked and delighted a lot of his supporters. But it was other things he did that crossed the line that delighted other parts of his base. Because in the debate, he was also the one who described abortion in incredibly graphic terms in ways that Republican pollsters and focus group leaders would tell him, no, don't do that. We don't talk about this issue that way. Well, he did it anyway. And social conservatives loved it. He rewrote the playbook for a party that in many ways, whose voters he understood better than party leaders. So I want to talk about the establishment. And when I say the establishment, I want to talk about mostly what happens in the Acela Corridor, which is the establishment of the what I call the political bureaucracy was and in some ways still is either unable or unwilling to come to terms with what was happening at the time, which led to what is happening and what might happen should more of this be allowed to proliferate. I had this conversation the other day about Fox News because Fox News and Roger Ailes are a big part of the book because the culture of the Republican Party, the kind of American gladiator style politics that unfolds on screen was very much what enabled Trump. But it's true. The way that Fox was creating this alternate reality for a lot of conservatives, a reality in which bad news didn't intrude and caricatures of the Democratic Party became the actual people in the minds of a lot of the folks watching, that is something that Democrats didn't appreciate. And as I quote Anita Dunn, who did appreciate that, you know, one of Biden's senior most strategists, she did appreciate it. And she says to me in the book, you know, this was the problem with Glenn Beck in 2009 when he was attacking Obama and too many Democrats just wrote it off as crazy or didn't think that it mattered, but it really did matter. And that's because you could see the beginnings of the Kellyanne Conway alternate facts world taking shape. But there's also, and I think we even see this today, whether or not it's right-wing media, which we should be clear, Jeremy, is pretty damn close to mainstream at this point. Oh, completely. Right? It's got enough of a viewership and a listenership to say that it's not an aberration. Yeah, but they're so good at telling their audience that they are persecuted, that the mainstream media is in control of the narrative. It's really incredible. And that goes back to the whole grievance thing from 30 years ago. I think you even say in the book, we're going to tell you what the others won't. And they do that to this day. And so now it's gone from not only 
we're going to tell you what the others won't. They have this like big metal thing that they just stick into people's adrenal glands, right? To just keep them fired up. And then it's almost like if they didn't get it, they'd be like in like, oh my God, I need my fix. I need my fix. That's one part. But this is the other thing that I think that the establishment hasn't understood is that it's all of a piece. It all works together, which is, you know, right wing media or radical media, Fox, Bannon, all of the talking heads, they're all in line with that core Republican. They're now Republicans, whether they call themselves that or not, base. So whether or not the flywheel starts at the top with Tucker and spins to the right or it starts at the bottom and spins to the left, the whole ecosystem spins around it. And Democrats have never understood. And, and I think even some, you know, what we used to call mainstream media don't understand it either, because you're right. You have to accept that the world is fundamentally different and normalcy bias is a really hard thing to overcome. Oh, that's absolutely right. And one of the things that uh, I get into in detail in the book is how Roger Ailes and Fox News understood how to make Fox more than just a source of information. It was an identity and a community. I mean, at one point, one of my sources told me how uh, an executive at Fox joke to him that they could make their own Fox branded manufactured home community in Florida or someplace like they could build actual neighborhoods in the villages or somewhere and people would buy them because Fox was more than just a channel. And it was a way to telegraph that you weren't one of them. Well, and, you know, it's interesting. You bring up the Gadsden flag several times which for folks that aren't as big a nerd as I am, is the yellow flag with the snake cut into pieces and it says, don't tread on me from, I think the revolution it has to go back that far. But, you know, I tell this story and the, the listeners have probably heard it before, Jeremy, but my in-laws live in a fairly wealthy place in Southern California. And one day during the 2020 campaign, I saw a guy in a blacked out Range Rover, probably a $150,000 car with a don't tread on me sticker on the bumper. Now, this is a guy here near as I can tell has never been tread on in his life. And if he had been, it wasn't recently. But it was an identity to your point about the big middle finger, which is it tells people it's sort of like the Karenization of America. You can't tell me what to do, which is fine as far as it goes, but also is sort of tearing at the fabric of the social strata. Not everybody can tell everybody else to F off all the time. That doesn't lead to something that like, is a workable solution to society just generally. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, that's part of like why it's so ugly and why people are willing to believe blatant untruths about what's happened in our elections. I mean, that is a grievance rooted emotion itself. This idea that they're stealing this election from you deeply intertwined with the notion that your country is slipping away from you, right? This idea, going back to the Gadsden flag, that the Tea Party really was just a continuation of the Goldwater movement and Halenism, which became Trumpism. The phrase, we want to take our country back, has been constant throughout all of those populist uprisings. And that's why voter fraud, despite how ludicrous it is to say that it's happening on a scale that denied Trump the White House, is powerful and has always been so powerful. It was a running voter fraud was a running story on Fox News. As I detail in the book, after the election, Roger Eales goes to pay Mitt Romney a visit and says to him, you know, don't worry, shake it off. The Democrats, they always cheat. And Fox News covered voter fraud. It's like that famous scene in Citizen Kane when he is running for governor and his editors are at the printing press 
And it's clear that Kane is not going to win. And so they change the headline from Kane wins to fraud at polls. <laughs> right. Life imitates art as usual. I mean, before we move on, there's one thing here, and this is about Donald Trump and Rush Limbaugh near inauguration. It says, Rush said something to me. It was very interesting. Trump recalls about the encounter. And Limbaugh says, quote, Bush did it. Both Bushes did and others. They always try and appease the left, Limbaugh said. And no matter how much you try, no matter what you do, they'll always hate you and they'll always screw you, unquote. Like if there's a description of how I believe that 70 percent of Republican voters and probably 70 percent of Republican leaders see the world is that they are out to get me. But the problem, Jeremy, I think, is that sometimes the left doesn't do a good job of explaining, no, I'm not out to get you. That's exactly right. And that's why the coronavirus restrictions and mandates are so divisive with a lot of conservatives, because they see it as an example of that kind of, you know, we're coming for you, comply or else. It's off to the gulag. But it's a really good point, because that moment to me in the book, in my interviews, was so revealing. Because Trump's saying there that first, the idea that he's taking his cues on how to govern from Limbaugh, it's almost poetic. Of course he is. Like these two broadcasters, people who understood the power of media right. the way that they did, were really peas in a pod. And when Limbaugh tells him, don't cut deals with the Democrats, the fact that that first stuck with Trump is pretty incredible. For him to repeat that to me four or five years later, because he is not a very introspective guy. I mean, let's be honest. He's not one to go give others credit. No, reflection is not in his DNA. It's not. You know, so the fact that Trump, A, remembered it, and B, governed that way is really the story of his presidency, right? Because basically the only time he ever really tried to cut a deal with the Democrats was when he was negotiating on what to do with the Dreamers, and that fell apart, and never again. He got yanked back to the right because all hell rained down on him. That was how he governed. And it was always the idea that strategists of his like Bannon had that he would never get any credit for cutting deals with the left because he was such a divisive figure that they would never be able to see him as any type of good faith partner. And I brought this up with Bannon. I said, did you, uh, did you ever hear Trump tell this story about Limbaugh and the advice he gave? And Bannon actually was there for that meeting with Limbaugh at Mar-a-Lago. And he said, I'm surprised that Trump remembered it because he's not the kind of guy to be so gracious in the retelling of how he became this phenomenon on the right. But we see that now in imitation in guys like Ron DeSantis in Florida, in Greg Abbott in Texas, anybody who potentially wants to win a primary, that they're now all just going after that base. What we've heard is that DeSantis makes every political and policy decision here, as I can tell, through the prism of what his polling is telling him the base of the base wants or what they approve of. I'm not surprised by that, but even if Trump isn't on the scene, a lot of the things that do anything, go anywhere, it's all about this part for people in power seems to be with us, at least for the time being. Absolutely. And this is part of what I meant when I said that unlearning the lessons of what was described to me as the fourth leg of the Republican stool, the stylistic conservatism that all about the attitude and the aggression to unlearn those lessons is going to be really hard because let's face it, by nature, politicians, most politicians are always fighting the last war. And this is how they were shown that they could win. The ones who were late to the Trump party 
figured this out and started adopting that style of politics after he showed them it worked. And I think it's going to be hard until someone else shows them a new way to do it. I mean, let's face it, this is all very unoriginal. They're copying a guy who's really inimitable in a lot of ways. He's a savant. Yeah. As far as knowing what plays with his people, except for the vaccines, and that's an interesting, you know, I don't know where that goes. But, you know, with the exception of little things like that, he doesn't make mistakes. I think that it's going to be an interesting question if the voters, that's the only way this is going to break what you were describing with DeSantis is like if the voters show them that this is no longer what they want, because Ron DeSantis, Kevin McCarthy, Republican politicians running for office aren't going to suddenly decide that Trump isn't the ticket they need to get punched anymore, right? That the voters are going to be the ones to tell them that because right now these Republicans fear their voters. I also think that they don't really understand their voters. I mean, you use a guy like Kevin McCarthy, who I remember back when he was minority leader of the Republican Assembly Caucus in Sacramento, who, you know, they'd been in the minority forever and they, they will be extinct before long, was he'd go to the Democratic speaker and say, I just need you to get my guys something. I know you're going to roll me over anyway, but just give me something I can take home. This is a guy who rose through the ranks from whip to leader, not based on the fact that he was a very good whip because he wasn't, but because he was able to raise outrageous amounts of money, right? Because he was a young gun. He was a younger, fresher face, somebody not as scary. And so now he's like the guy trying to change his stripes, which, of course, to use a cheetah expression like Matt Gates did, they all know he's faking it. They all know that he spray painted his spots on. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it raises a question of how vulnerable he could be to a challenge to become speaker if, uh, as it looks likely, Republicans win back control of the House next year. So I think this is another example of the theme of the book. The insurgents always find a way to overpower party leadership. Kevin McCarthy is not an insurgent, but his political future will be decided by those insurgents. It amazes me that they haven't learned this lesson. I mean, both of the last two last Republican speakers of the House learned this lesson the hard way. Yeah, and they got run out of town. Exactly. You cannot appease the insurgents. Inviting them inside the tent on the basis that it's better to have them in there than outside pissing in is not an answer. It's not workable, and it will always backfire. So let me ask you this. Your colleague, Jonathan Martin, at the Times, who I've known since uh, we were eating chilies at hard times in Old Town Alexandria when he was with Politico, had a story out about McConnell and the establishment Republicans in D.C. trying to sort of take the party back. It was very good reporting, and I'd sort of, sort of started to see this developing even a few weeks ago when you noticed McCarthy was on, you know, a couple of podcasts. They're starting to sort of try and very delicately push out the edges of their own particular lane. But the one thing that I think is missed by McConnell and these guys is that they don't understand. And this is something that McConnell should understand, given how long he's been at it, is even if you went 10 years ago, Jeremy, and you were in a Republican focus group and you said, who do you hate more, Harry Reid or Mitch McConnell? The answer would always be Mitch McConnell, because Harry Reid was supposed to be the enemy. But Mitch McConnell was a traitor to the cause. And so Mitch McConnell is going to get, quote, his candidate through the primary. But what it seems is that they're missing is if five to 10 percent of that hate the libs base says, I don't like either one of these guys or gals, they'll just stay home. Oh, completely. 
And that's the problem when Trump's not on the ticket. Like we said, and why I think Trumpism doesn't exist without Trump. He's just too singular. You can't fake this. And a lot of people are trying, but I don't see it working. But McConnell is an interesting point. If we just go back to that for a second, like how he was the enemy, because of course, McConnell is the reason that Trump, as the second half of the subtitle of the book says, gave Republicans everything they ever wanted. McConnell's the one who delivers the Supreme Court and delivers them a federal bench that is now decidedly tilting to the right. So the idea that, you know, Mitch McConnell is somehow a traitor just because he's, he says he dares to say that January 6th was an insurrection and that those people deserve to be prosecuted and jailed is really kind of remarkable. And that goes back to the point that we were just discussing about how this is Trump's movement because his enemies then become their enemies. And that's not Ron DeSantis. Right. And I think this is where we are in a dangerous place, too, as you started the book with January 6th, is they do see them as enemies, not opponents, which is a massive distinction with a major difference. Oh, it's incredible. And this is a big theme of the book, too, the othering of your opponents that starts in the book, at least, with the, you know, the kind of valley trash label that Sarah Palin then takes as a badge, but then kind of metastasizes into something with more of a racial element under Obama when they accuse him ludicrously of having a fake birth certificate and being a Muslim. Do you think it's a coincidence then that that's where Trump starts building his base in the Republican Party through Fox News and the kooky birthers? I mean, no, it all, it's, it's, it's all there. You know, and this is where the Democrats often help them along, which is rather than solidly and even viciously repudiating it immediately, they try and explain it, right? Explain, explain, explain. If people just understood, right? Like I was on a call earlier today with somebody who's like, well, how, you know, I was talking to this guy and like, you know, he's a Republican. And I said, the 2020 election wasn't stolen. This is not a stupid guy. And then as soon as I said that, like he just doubled and tripled down. And I'm like, it's not reasonable. You have to take reason and rationality out of the equation because they don't exist in this time, at least amongst the Republican Party. And the Democrats are all about intellectualism and standing there and going, but we really do love you people, you Americans. We really do love you. And everybody knows, like, well, I don't think I'm getting it. But let me ask you this. I mean, does Trump run in 2024? I've had a consistent answer on this since a year ago when I first spoke to him right after January 6th. And I think, yes, the caveat being if the election were tomorrow. The election's not tomorrow, of course, and he's such a fickle guy, you never know. He was changing his mind up until the last minute in 2015. But I think, yes, because at the moment, his delusion, the denial of reality, is so powerful in his mind. It's overwhelmed everything, every decision, colored every decision he's made. And he thinks he's talked himself into it. And I don't know where the election is being stolen started with him if it started as a ploy. But I do know, I'm fairly convinced at least, that he believes it. I quote Steve Bannon in the book as saying, you know, Trump is the guy that believes his own BS once it comes out of his mouth. Of course, Bannon then added a dig at Bill Clinton saying, yeah, he, he's the guy who passed the lie detector test like Bill Clinton would. <laughs> but there's truth to that. I think Trump has talked himself into this injustice, believing that this grave injustice has been perpetrated against him. And so now he needs to go out and avenge that. Right. And it's not just an injustice against him. It's an injustice against him and all his people. Because once again, he's just the guy from Queens that the rich guys in Manhattan will never accept, right? It all comes back to like, 
elementary school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Jeremy, I want to thank you again for joining me today. And everybody, his book is out now, Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted. A must read if you want to know how we got to where we are today. You can find Jeremy on Twitter at JWPetersNYT. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.